At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. We live in a culture filled with promises for a better life, deeper satisfaction, and greater purpose, but how do we know which is right? We invite you to join us for Smoke and Mirrors, deciphering truth in a world of truths, where we'll look to Scripture to expose the illusions of our culture, and together, hold fast to a better answer, God's. Ecclesiastes 2, beginning in verse 11. The preacher says, Then I considered all that my hands had done, and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind. There was nothing to be gained under the sun. So I turned to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. And I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will also happen to me. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this is also is vanity. For of the wise, as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come, all who all will have been long forgotten, how the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life, because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and a striving after a wind. This is the word of God. Let's give thanks and pray together. Father, we hear your voice in these words. This is your word for us, and so we thank you that you have spoken. Uh, Lord, we would come and ask this morning that as your word is preached, that you would, by your spirit, shape us, make us more like Christ, grant to us this morning repentance and faith, help us to obey your word, to love you and to walk with you, so that we might be more and more like Christ, and we might grow in your image, and we might glorify you in all things. Help me now as I preach your word, help us to listen and receive and obey and to glorify you in all things. We pray this in the powerful name of Jesus this morning. Amen. Why do we like being able to determine the outcome of our lives? Why do we like that power? I think about the ever-present form of uh, what I'll call choose-your-own-adventure media that exists today. When I was a kid, it was literally the choose-your-own-adventure books that I, that I got and read in school. Uh, if you're unfamiliar with these books, here's how they work. You would read part of the story at the beginning, and you would come to the bottom of the page, and there would be kind of some options in front of you. It would go like something like this. It would say, you know, do you want to enter the creepy house? If so, turn to page 12. Or, would you rather run into the dark forest? If so, turn to page 73. If you chose to turn to page 73 and run into the creepy forest, you'd find out you died being mauled by a bear. And that's how the story ended, just the way it went. 
The format is still popular today. We haven't exhausted it or left it behind. Netflix recently released a TV show with Bear Grylls called You vs. Wild, and they put the interactive power in your hand to supposedly accompany Bear on an uh, adventure, an outdoor adventure, and periodically the show would pause. It would stop, and Bear would look at the camera, and he would ask you something like this. He was like, would you rather climb down this sheer rock face with just a single tiny rope, or would you rather cross the freezing stream up stream, and if you, the media gave you the opportunity to choose between the two options, obviously if you chose to cross the river upstream, you discovered you were eaten by gators and you died. Just how the choose your own adventure worked. The show stopped, you know. <laughs> Even video game media today that our kids enjoy has this kind of choose your own adventure reality baked into it. The game Minecraft, it's just a big sandbox. You get to do whatever you want. Just survive through the night. Build whatever you want, go wherever you want, dig whatever you want, do whatever you want, just survive. That's how Minecraft works. And my question is, why is that appealing to us? Why do we like that kind of thing in, in the world? Well, this series, and, and particularly the book of Ecclesiastes, has been asking a big question of life, the huge question. Where do we go to find meaning in life? How do we find it? How do we determine where meaning is? The preacher here in Ecclesiastes, he says this in chapter 1, verse 3. He says, what does a person gain for all his effort that he labors at under the sun? That's the big question. What's it, what's it matter? What's meaning in life truly? What does he gain from all that he does under the sun here on this earth? And that, that question really is answered by a couple different visions that are presented in the world. Ultimately, where is life and meaning in life found? The secular vision that the world offers and, and speaks says life under the sun here on this planet is, is materialistic. You find meaning in, in material things, natural things, this world stuff. Secularism says that life is found in the here and the now. Timothy Keller put it this way. He says, ultimately, secularism is finding all the resources you need for meaning in life and personal fulfillment and morality and working for justice. You find all of those things, if you're secular, in purely human, this world resources. It's all here, everything under the sun. And that's where you find meaning in life. In this series, we've been looking at several of those, those realities, some of those facets that, that come from Secularism, things like naturalism, the life's meaning is found in, in science or the available providence of man, or, or life's meaning is found in intellectualism, the meaning is found in acquiring knowledge and wisdom even, and being the smartest person in the room. We, we've looked last week, we saw how secularism teaches us that life's meaning is found maybe in hedonism, pleasure, having the greatest pleasure. I mean, you only live once, right? So enjoy it all. Have it all. Get your best life now. You only live once. And yet, the preacher of Ecclesiastes, some have said that's Solomon. He, he certainly has the Solomonic vibe. He, he presents himself as Solomon. He's experimenting with all of these different visions of life, and he goes, it doesn't work. It's insufficient. It, it doesn't matter. It's, it's all vanity, breath. It's, it's a striving after the wind. And, and here in chapter 2, in another spot, he takes on another facet of secularism, another vision of the world and where life, meaning in life comes from. He takes another vision of it, and he says, let's see if this really weighs itself out. It's another thought experiment. 
does meaning in life come from you and from me? Do we find meaning in life through our own choose our adventure, define our own lives? However you identify, whatever your self-determined course of life is, whatever your achievements in life are and your accolades and your accomplishments, does that give you meaning in life? That's the question he asked. This view, individualism, can best be summed up in William Ernest Henley's poem, Invictus. You might know this poem. Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud. Under the bludgeoning of chance, my head is bloody but unbowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but the horror of shade. And yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. Matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Is that where meaning is found? Begs the question, does meaning come from our own individual achievements or choose our own adventure moments, being the captain of our own soul, self-determined lives? Now, if we're wise, we'll listen to wise sages. We'll listen to the preacher of Ecclesiastes. He's, he's going to dive into this thought experiment. He's going to take us there with him, and he's going to ask, is, it, is this where we find meaning? Whatever it is you determine it, whatever accolades and achievements you build for yourself, is that really where meaning in life is found? Again, if you're a young person here today, if you're a high schooler, young adult, this is the big offer that the world is speaking to you. It's, it's saying you only matter in what you achieve. So make it big. Make it great. And, and God wants to ask you to consider the question, is that really where meaning in life is found? Are you the sum of your achievements? The preacher here, he, he'll tell us. I'm going to give us the answer right away. He's going to say, no, it's not. Chapter 1, verse 2, he says, Smoke. This is Eugene Peterson's translation. He says, smoke, nothing but smoke. That's what the preacher says. There's nothing to anything. It's all smoke, smoke and mirrors. The worldview of secularism that says life is determined by your individual choices and accomplishments and achievements, it's breath. It's vanity. And furthermore, in verse 11 of chapter 2, he makes an astounding claim about his achievements and accomplishments. Now, if this is Solomon writing this, Solomon the, the, one of the greatest kings in Israel, he's built an empire. He's built up the city of Jerusalem to be one of the most beautiful cities, built the palace, built the temple. He's unified the kingdom. The borders of Israel go vastly beyond what they ever had before. There's wealth and prosperity all under his reign. If you look at anybody's achievements, you might say, well, Solomon had it. He had it all. And if, if this is Solomon writing this, then just consider what he says in verse 11. Chapter 2, he says, Then I considered all that my hands had done, everything I had worked for, and the toil I had expended in doing it, what I had labored to achieve, and I found everything futile. The pursuit of the wind. Under the sun, that's his favorite phrase in this entire book, on this earth, the secular vision, the secular dream, there's nothing to be gained in it. Everything is vapor. Meaningless. What, what 
the preacher here says is that our accomplishments and our achievements and building our life on our individualism, it doesn't satisfy. Our quest for achievements and meaning in life through them, they come up empty. So, so let's follow him in the thought exercise that he's taking here and ask the question, why don't accomplishments ultimately satisfy? Why doesn't building an incredible resume, a kingdom to yourself, why does it fall short? Why doesn't it fulfill us and give us meaning in life? Well, the preacher here, he points out three reasons I think that our accomplishments don't ultimately satisfy, three, three things that tell us, like, you're not going to find meaning in life in achieving great things or building a huge resume or a kingdom to yourself. And, and the preacher, he couches all of this under the idea of personal improvement, self-determination, he says in verse 12, he says, I turn to consider, he's just thinking about what he had done. Everything he had done is, is vanity, it's, it's dust, it's just striving after the wind. And he says, so I turned to consider. So I started thinking about this. And I started considering wisdom and madness and folly. He's asking the question, what makes for the best life? Is it being wise? Or, or is it being foolish? Or is it being completely insane and utterly mad? Like, where am I going to find this meaning? What gives meaning and purpose here? And, and why am I never satisfied? He thinks about these things. And he realizes the problem. First of all, our, our achievements don't satisfy us. Our accomplishments don't ultimately satisfy. Because no matter why you pursue your accomplishments, no matter why you build your resume, whatever the, the motivations are underneath, someone else in life is going to do better than you. Someone's going to top you in that. So he's, he's thinking about it. I considered wisdom and madness and folly. Maybe the best way to live is a wise life, to work hard. Maybe my motivations should be full of wisdom and shrewdness and skillful living, and, and that'll help me build my resume. But he said, I also started thinking about the, just the insane person and how they go about doing what they do and why they think the way they think and what they do and and their life, and, and even the foolish idiot, I mean, just the moron who just is stupid in life, and why they do the things that they do, I, and I evaluate that. And then he says, he came to this conclusion. He says, what can the man do who comes after the king? Now, from Solomon's perspective here, he's thinking about his dad, King David. King David, the, really the best of all of Israel's kings, the man after God's own heart, the one who defeated the Philistines and pushed back Israel's enemies, the one who did truly unite the kingdom and brought peace and prosperity. David is the best of kings. And, and the preacher here is looking at it as if he's Solomon and that's his dad and he's going like, I can't top that, nobody can. I mean, he got the A plus, his resume is the best, Best king ever. What, what can you do after that? How can, you, how can you achieve that? Well, sure, I can build a big temple. I can build a big palace, make some great buildings. But does that really top what, what he did? What can be done? What can the man do who comes after the king? And his conclusion is this. Only what has already been done. It's the same thing. I can't top it. can't beat it. Solomon is asking, how can my accomplishments be any better than his? What am I going to bring to the table that's better than David? The question might be, well, maybe it's motives. Maybe, maybe your motives could be better. But does that really matter? The question at the end of the day won't be, well, why did you accomplish those things? Whether you're wise or smart or sane or crazy or foolish or you're a monster, it's not going to matter. 
The only thing that will be noted will be what you did, what was accomplished. And there will always be someone who will accomplish something better than you. It's inevitable. And that's depressing for us. Let's be honest about it. Because someone else will always outshine your accomplishments. If you're building and seeking meaning in your life based on what you do, your resume, your achievements, your trophy case, guess what? Somebody's going to have a bigger trophy case. They're going to have a better resume. They're going to do better than you. And the motivations really don't matter whether you do good, whether you're wise and noble and or whether you're villainous, someone else's achievements will always surpass ours, which is why we can't idolize our achievements. We can't worship our trophy cases. We can't make gods out of our work and our jobs because somebody else will always do it better. And think about this, and I'll just help you understand it. The benchmarks are always changing, right? Nobody in society really cares about who, are, who the millionaires are anymore, right? Like, well, yeah, we know they're there. There's a ton of them. We're more interested in who the billionaires are. The mark changed. It's not so much about the Rockefellers. It's now more about the Bezos and the Gates. That's, that's what's important. Somebody else is always making more money. It's always their better achievements. Or, or if you think about it in the world of athletics, nobody cares if you run a mile in less than five minutes anymore. It's mediocre. Everybody does that. Not me. Everybody does we want to know, can you, make, can you run a mile in under four minutes now? Can that be done? A couple times. Do you remember the valedictorian of your class in high school? Maybe you graduated magna cum laude from college and university. doesn't matter. Somebody who graduated magna cum barely, they're going to have better, better vocational insights. They may do well in the world than you will. The point here is that achievements don't satisfy because no matter how you do them, someone else will top what you've done. They'll improve upon your work. They'll do it better. And so building a life, an individualistic life on our achievements, you're just, somebody's going to stand on your shoulders. They'll do it better. That's his first reason here why our achievements don't matter. The second reason is that no matter how you do them, no matter how you go about your work, whether it's with wisdom or with folly, you're going to die. No matter how we do our achievements and how we build our trophies and our resumes, we're all going to die. He, he says here in verse 13, he says, then I saw, and this is, a, this is an insight for us, this is a tip on, you know, if you just want to live life decently, if you're going to buy the secular vision and you want to live just okay, he says, then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet, I perceived that the same event happens to all of them. So he does tip his hand out and he says, okay, it is better under the sun in this world, in a secular life, it is better to live with wisdom, to have some skill in living, just to be, to be wise and understand how life works best. That, that does feel good. It will be okay and better in that way. Certainly better than being an utterly insane fool. There's more light and darkness. There's more gain in that. A wise person has their eyes in there. They can see where they're going. The fool walks in darkness. But no matter what, here's his point, the wise person and the fool, they all die. If you're building your life on your accomplishments and you do it with wisdom, guess what? You die just like the idiot does who squandered and wasted his life. The same end, the same result. 
So learn, discern, be skillful and shrewd and wise, but also understand you're going to die just as the fool does. And, and you feel kind of the disparity of this. He says in verse 15, he says, Then I said in my heart, so he kind of speaks in, What happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart, This is also vanity. He just looks inside and he goes, I really worked hard. I, I was diligent. I like, did like the right stuff. I applied wisdom to my life. I worked hard. Achieved notoriety, and I made my own way in the world. And just like the fool, I'm dying too. What's the point? He's saying here, your achievements will be wiped off the slate. Your fate, just the same as the person who's a complete idiot about life. Death comes for us all. And he feels this. He's like, that's vanity. It's meaningless. Now, again, he's speaking from the secular perspective. If this life is all that matters... If this is where you build your meaning and purpose in life based on what you do, it's a zero-sum gain. Everybody dies. So if you're a workaholic, you're workaholicking your way through life, thinking about building something impressive or great and being all smart about it, guess what? You're going to die. The same as the dude that's just wasting away their life being a fool and stupid. You just built a taller pyramid than them. Right. Your little empire of achievements, they're ridiculous and they're vain and they're stupid and they're meaningless. If you're looking at life from under the sun, the secular dream. I like the phrase memento mori. We're all gonna die. Remember your death. So building your life on your achievements, here's his point. Building your life on your achievements, your self-determination, and your personal identity is whoop-de-doo. I mean, go for it, but it won't matter. I'm a real downer today. I came back from vacation. And just <laughs> he says, we, our achievements don't satisfy in life because it doesn't matter how we do them. Somebody will do better. It doesn't matter what we do. We're all going to die. And the third thing is, he says, no matter what you do, as great as your achievements might be, ultimately they will be forgotten. Eventually they will be just ignored. He says in verse 16 and 17. For of the wise... As of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come, all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. I made this point a few weeks ago, but, but think with me here. Who is really going to remember your achievements and your trophies and your resume and your greatness in life 70 years from now, maybe 50, 100 Who's really going to remember the stuff of your life, the achievements that you made, the awards you won at your job, how many hours you put in? Who's going to remember that? Nobody. Nobody is. I mean, let, let's just do our own thought experiment here. Consider Alexander the Great, right? He's got it in his name. Alexander the Great. What did he do? Now, I know some of you are historians and you like that stuff. That you, you're going to know these answers. That's okay. Right? He, he conquered the known world by the age of early 30s, maybe 33, conquered the known world. Can you tell me the details of what that was? Like, not just where, but like, how, what, what battles did he fight in? What exploits did he, did he have? What armies did he conquer? Who were his friends? Like, can you tell me any of those details? Most of us would know Alexander the Great as the guy who conquered the known world and then died at 33. That's it! 
That's all we remember about him. And he was the great. You're going to top his achievements? People are going to remember your stuff thousands of years later beyond what they remember about him? Come on. Even the greatest are forgotten. Their lives, their accomplishments, their successes, their trophies, their accolades, all dust. They're not even a footnote in history sometimes. And I don't mean to be demeaning about our congregation. I know each of you are unique and special. You're made in the image of God. But let's be honest. Not one of us is Alexander the Great. In the history of the world, nobody's going to remember us and our little thing going on in Plymouth, Michigan. You're probably not even going to remember us 100 years from now. The books I write, they're not going to be on the shelves for centuries being classics of the Christian faith. They might last a decade if I'm lucky. There's no remembrance. That's what he's saying here. If I'm building my life, if you're building your life on your, on your achievements and your accolades, there is no enduring remembrance seeing that in the days to come, all will have been long forgotten how the wise dies like the fool. Now, here's the preacher's conclusion on this secular life and finding meaning in our accomplishments, our self-determining identities and expressions. Verse 17. He says, so I hated life. You're like, I hate this sermon. <laughs> so depressing. I hated life because what is done under the sun, on this planet, secular dream, it's grievous for me. It's got no point. All is vanity and a striving after the wind. Now you feel the existential angst here that your trophy case does not give you meaning in life. Your resume does not add up to value for you. Your choose your own story and pursuits to make life be whatever you want it to be and however great you want to be through that, ultimately, it's all smoke and mirrors. It's empty. That is to say, you're not supreme. You will not last. You will not be remembered. And what you do, whether it's good or bad, whether it's wise or folly, in the tales of human history, they're not really that meaningful or historic. Are you buying that vision of life? Are you, are you buying the secular dream that says your meaning in life comes from what you do, your accomplishments, your achievements, your legacy? I, I just want to help you diagnose this. I was thinking about this. I want to help you diagnose this if this is the case in your life. There are some telltale signs about how we live because we might not, oh, no, no, I, my life isn't meaningful based on what I do, but there are some telltale signs, I think, that betray that, that show us, yes, we are buying the secular dream if we live this way. I mentioned this one earlier, but if you're a workaholic, if like your job defines you and your pursuit of your job and your work, you just give yourself to it completely, that, that's an indicator of your life being lived around this idea of your achievements give you meaning. If you can't rest, if you can't pause, if you can't stop, if you can't take a vacation, if you can't relax, or if you feel guilt and shame when you do that, you're probably basing your identity and your meaning in life on what you do, on your accomplishments, on your achievements. Another way of diagnosing that is maybe to see if you're a perfectionist. If everything has to be perfect and in order and you demand perfection from yourself and others, and you're just the, the stalwart of it's all got to be right. You're probably inclining your heart toward the identity that your value and your meaning in life comes from what you do, from your achievements, 
Maybe, and this is another way of diagnosing it, if you are vicariously living through other people, particularly your children, that is you're importing your self on someone else's life and expecting them to achieve so you can be a part of that achievement, part of that success. So if you ride your your kids hard about their academic achievements so that you feel validated, if you're pushing your kids in youth sports, devoting yourself to that so that they will achieve and you will rise with that. I mean, the question is there, it's begging to be asked, are you living the secular dream and believing that your value, your meaning in life comes from what you do? Ultimately, if you believe that you are supreme, you're living the secular dream out. And again, the preacher here says it's all vanity. It's striving after the wind. And you know it. It's smoke and mirrors. Well, here's a question. What's left? (laughs) This is a vision of the world and where we find meaning in the world here in Ecclesiastes of life apart from God. Life under the sun. God isn't even mentioned in this passage here. And when we find ourselves pursuing identity and value and meaning through our achievements, we find ourselves empty. But what if God is in the picture? What do we see when we turn to him? Well, the scriptures show us that God is the supreme one, that God is supreme, that he is the greatest, he is the ultimate. No one can top his glory, his achievements, his work, his accomplishments. Who here is going to out achieve God? Who's going to be greater than him? And so the secular dream doesn't hold up because we are ignoring and taking out of the equation the greatest one there is. Isaiah, another preacher, like the preacher of Ecclesiastes, he sees this supremacy, this vision of the supremacy of God and his glory. And and Isaiah invites us to, to get out from underneath the sun, all vanity here, and to look up. And to see God. And he says, I want, you to, I want you to ask yourself some questions. God himself enters the room and he, he begins to speak and says, let's, let's just talk about this. Go with me in Isaiah 40. God shows up on the picture, comes to the room, and <laughs> he, he just asks some questions. Verse 12 here. I like these questions. God asks this. He says, who here has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span? Can you just raise your hand if you were able to take all the oceans and the rivers and the streams, all that, and just kind of measure out them in, in the hollow of your hand? Could you just show your hand? I'd like to know, meet you. Or if you spanned out the heavens just from here to here, you measured them. Anybody here done that? No. I mean, it's, it's a rhetorical question. Nobody's done that. Nobody has. Or verse 13, who's measured the spirit of the Lord? Or, or what man, what person shows him counsel? I mean, who of us has gone up to God and said, God, I got a great idea. And God listening goes, oh, you're right. I didn't think about that. Brilliant. Anybody here done that? We inform God on that way? No. Who does does God consult? Verse 14. Who has God consult and who made him understand? Anybody here had God come to them and say, hey, big problem. I don't don't know. Can Can you give me some ideas? Spitball this with me. Help me figure it out. Anybody had God show up and ask for your wisdom and counsel? No. (laughs) 
We can't. And, and, and the, the conclusion here is like, to whom will you then liken God? Verse 18. What likeness will you compare him? Who, who does God consult? He doesn't consult anybody. Who will you liken God? What likeness will you compare with him? Well, here's a solution, an idol. Something under the sun, an idol, a craftsman cast it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts it for silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that would not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Are our trophy cases, aren't they just idols for us? Wood, some, maybe some plastic or metal, craftsman made, it won't move, but we look at it and we worship it and see, see how great I am. Are you going to compare that to God? Are you going to show your resume to God and say, hey, we match up. We're like equals. We're on the same page. No. Isaiah here is just preaching to help us see how foolish we think we are living out our lives and finding meaning and purpose in what we do apart from God. And so God says in verse 21, do you not know? Do you not hear? Hasn't been told to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? This is eternal. This goes back to day one. It is God, he who sits above the circle of the earth. And its inhabitants, you and me, we're like grasshoppers. God is the one who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes the rulers of this earth, he brings them to nothing and makes the rulers on the earth as emptiness. The presidents that we venerate and we worship, we think they are so great. God says they're nothing. They're emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, verse 24, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth. When he, God, blows on them, they wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble. His point is here, like, let's compare up with God. We can't. God is supreme. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. You, th you think you're going to stand up? Match up to God? You're foolish. God is utterly supreme and above all, all, above all our achievements, above all our attempts at making meaning in life about our greatness and glory and bigness. They're not even footnotes to the glory and majesty of God. We're grasshoppers. How silly of us to think our achievements give us meaning in life. And we're a big deal. And maybe you feel all the weight of this and you're like, wow, this is really depressing. If God wins, then what meaning is there for me in life? He's great. I'm a grasshopper. Nobody. God's supreme and he's the one who's most glorious and I'm dust and vapor and stubble before him. Then really, maybe we should go back to the preacher of Ecclesiastes and say, what does it really matter? It doesn't. There's good news here for us. There's such good news, and that's this. God inclines himself, he leans in, and he shares his victory, his supremacy, his greatness with his people. He shares himself with us. Look at verse 27. Isaiah, the preacher here, is not done. Speaking from God, he says, Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by God? Yeah, God's so big and great. This is what Israel's saying. God is so big and great, and he's up there, and I'm like, nothing. He doesn't care. He doesn't see me. Oh, yes, he does. 
Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He doesn't grow faint or weary. His understanding is unsearchable. Yeah, he is supreme. We better acknowledge it. But he comes to us and he says, he gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Here's the invitation of God to us. Are you faint? Have you been working so hard to accomplish something for yourself and for your glory that you're just spent and tired? God draws near to give you strength. Not to better your name or to make yourself bigger, but to know him. God himself comes to those who are poor in spirit, those who mourn, those who weak are weak, those who are, who are suffering. He comes to those who are humble and he supplies his glory and his greatness and his supremacy in love towards us. He, he grants to us his victory. Isaiah the preacher is inviting us into a new relationship with God where we trust and depend and find meaning not in our accomplishments and achievements, but we find meaning in him, the supreme God, and he gives us purpose. He gives us new life. He gives us eternal value and worth. And we come to him by waiting on the Lord. That's his key word here. They who wait for the Lord. Waiting for the Lord is the idea of, of turning from our own attempts, turning from our own achievements, turning from our own opportunities to prop ourselves up and resting in the achievement of Christ for us. But Jesus came for the proud, the self-determined, self-idolizing people, and he told them, he told us, lay down your efforts. Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. Is that you today? You're working so much to build your resume, to expand your trophy case, to make sure that people notice your achievements and you are spent from it. You're hoping that one of these achievements will give you purpose and meaning. Like the light will go off and you're tired. Jesus says, come to me. That's exactly who he wants to deal with. He says, come to me and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart. And Jesus says, you will find rest for your souls. Our lives' meaning and value isn't found in our own accomplishments and in our own purposes. Our meaning and value is found in Christ, his supremacy and glory. Your works aren't enough to accomplish immortality for you. But Jesus offers you rest through his works, his perfect sinless life for you, his sinless sacrifice of death on the cross for you, his glorious resurrection from the dead to secure and to give you an eternal name and glory that will never be surpassed and never fade away. And he says to you, come to me, come to me. I love how in the letters to the churches in Revelation, the last book of the Bible, Jesus makes promises. He says, to those who overcome, to, to those who, who come to me and trust me and overcome the secular dream and vision of life, but see my supremacy, 
He says, to those who overcome, I, I have something for you. Oh, let me just list these out real quick. He says, to those who overcome, who come to me, I'll give you the right to eat from the tree of life that is in the paradise of God. I'll give you the, the right to never be harmed by the second death. There's eternal life. He says, I'll give you a new name, identity. I'll give you authority over the nations. Isn't that what we want in our achievements? Power, authority to be noticed. But coming to Jesus is where we find that. He says, I'll give you a name that will never be erased from the book of life. Immortality. You will be known by God forever. So I'll make you a pillar in the temple of my God. You will stand and be in the presence of God eternally. You'll find your meaning there. He says, I'll give you the right to sit with me on my throne. All under the supremacy of God for us inviting us and sharing his victory with us to come to him and not build our lives on our own achievements and our own resumes and our own works, the things of this world, but on him. So he invites us, just come to me. Turn in repentance and come to me. Friends, are you, are you trying to build your life value on choosing your, your own adventure, your self-determination, your individualism, your works, your accomplishments, it's an empty dream. It's vanity. So come to Jesus. God offers us glory in him. Let's make our lives about knowing him, glorifying him. As Westminster says, the chief end of man, the chief purpose for us is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's where it is. It's meaning for us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your kind and gentle invitation to us in Christ to come to you and find rest for our souls, to be renewed by you. You are the supreme one, so Lord, let us lay down our idols. We repent this morning of our attempts to make trophy cases for ourselves and to think of ourselves as a big deal and to spend our lives trying to accomplish something that in the end is just vapor and ignoring you. May we come to you today, center our lives and our work and our families and all that we are and do on Christ, that you might be glorified forever and that we might enjoy you. Help us and we thank you. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself today.